People love a good origin story, don't they? You know what I'm talking about, the origin story, the, the prequel or the, the, you know, the, the background scoop on uh, what makes a character who they are, whether for good or for bad. You know, the, every, every good character should have a proper backstory. We want to know where they came from and what makes them uh, who they are. From Batman to Darth Vader and in light of the season, even to Santa Claus himself, you know, people will pay good money to learn about where their favorite characters came from, what makes them tick, what makes them who they are. And of course, in real life, we're, we're fascinated to see family trees and pictures of ancestors because there's just this inherent interest that we as people have in, in learning where our own stories begin. I sent a picture to the AV team, and they're going to put that up on the screen here, here uh, for you to, to see. And I'll give you a little bit of a story about who you're looking at there. Um, my, my youngest child, William, his middle name is Henry. Now, my wife and I chose that name because it's a family name. It comes from uh, directly from my, my father, whose middle name was Henry. He, he was John Henry, and my son is William Henry. But the Henry name goes back even further, all the way back to my father's great-grandfather, the man you see in the picture there. That is Heinrich Klobus and his wife, Christina. Those are my great-great-grandparents who emigrated to uh, our country in, at, the, at the beginning of the 20th century. They arrived in New York City on September 21st. 1904 on a ship named after a river in Germany called the Neckar. And I know that all those details mean absolutely nothing to any of you in here this morning. But they mean something to me because this is part of my story. This is part of where I come from and my, where my kids come from. And if these were your, your ancestors, then you, it would matter to you because we, we care about these origin stories. We want to know where things come from. Well, here, of course, at the start of another liturgical year in the life of the church, we're going to, as we do every year, we're going to rehearse once again the stories behind Christmas, behind the incarnation of the Son of God. We're going to look at what the origin story is of, of him and, and of those events. And this morning, I'm interested in how Luke begins his account. So we're going to be in the beginning of the book of Luke, will be, you can find it on the guest Bible on page 820. If you happen to grab one of those, we're going to be there here in just a moment. But Luke, he begins his account with a voice, a voice that cries out in the wilderness. Of course, it's the voice of John the Baptist. But John the Baptist has an origin story, and Luke gives us a little bit of that. And you are no doubt, I'm assuming, uh, at least relatively familiar with John the Baptist's backstory, where he came from and what was part of, made him who he was. And we're going to take a look at that here, the first part of the book of Luke, before we get to our sermon text there later in the, the later part of the first chapter of, of the book of Luke. Look at with me here for a moment in, on verses, uh, in chapter one at verses five through seven, it says, when Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. And he was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife, Elizabeth, was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children, because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. 
Well, one day, the story will go on here, Zechariah was performing his duty in the temple when he received a visitation from an angel named Gabriel. And Gabriel appeared to basically tell, tell them that, you know, uh, something is going to happen in your life that you never expected to happen. I've come to give you, he says in verse 19, good news. It's good news that you are going to have a son, and that son will be the herald of salvation. That's why it's good news, not just because, you know, God is going to answer a prayer for these, this couple, this righteous couple, but it's good news because the, the result of their union and this child that comes from it will be people will be drawn to the Lord. So it is good news. And by the way, there in verse, nine, uh, verse 17 and verse, later verse 19, that's the first place where good news or the Greek word gospel appears. Um, well, the English word gospel, it comes from the Greek word. That's the first place where that appears in, in Luke's book. It has to do with this forerunner, this predecessor that's coming into the world. And sure enough, uh, Zechariah's response was probably how you and I would have responded when, when we would hear something like that in a situation like that. It was one of disbelief. He had a hard time wrapping his mind around what Gabriel had to say about him and his wife. And, and the response to that in verse 20 is this. It says, um, since you didn't believe, Gabriel says, what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. So Zechariah was struck mute, and I would even go as far to say probably deaf as well. Because later in the story, as, as we hear Luke's account of how friends and relatives interacted with him, it says they were gesturing to him. They were, it's like they were using their hands to help him understand what they were saying as if he had trouble hearing them. So this is the consequence of Zechariah's disbelief that he would not be able to speak or probably also hear until the baby was born until the word of the Lord came to fruition. And sure enough, Elizabeth, Elizabeth became pregnant shortly thereafter, and they had their child, and, and Zechariah could not speak until the child was born. And even another eight days later, when the, the friends and relatives of this couple came together to celebrate the circumcision of this child on the eighth day, and all the people there assumed that they would follow tradition and name their child after his father, but Elizabeth remembered what the angel had said. She remembered the word of the Lord and she insisted that the child's name would be John, which was not a family name for them. And when all the friends and relatives began to argue and debate with her, Zechariah took a tablet and he wrote, no, his name is John. And at that moment, his tongue was loosed and he proceeded to share the following prophecy. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. What did he have to say when he was, as we're told in the text, filled with the Holy Spirit? And by the way, in Luke's narrative, he's the first to be spoken to from the Lord, and yet he's the last to be filled with the Holy Spirit in this chapter. But when he is, he has something to say, beginning there in verse 68, which will be our sermon text here in just a moment. In this passage, this, this prophecy of Zechariah, this song, if you want to think of it as like a song, it's, uh, it has traditionally been called the Benedictus, which is a Latin word which is the translation of the first Greek word in the passage, that word that is eulogetos, which means blessed or blessing. And so benedictus is this blessing. It's where you get the word benediction at the end of a service. I give a benediction. I bless you as you go at the end of our services on Sunday. But this benediction or this song is the second of four that you can find in the first two chapters of Luke. 
You recall, of course, the, the first one, which was from Mary, the mother of Jesus, the Magnificat, going back into verse 47 of this chapter. Um, we've, we've spent time there in Christmases uh, in the past. Um, that's the first you can find here in Luke. Uh, the, the third you can find in the, the second chapter. It's called, uh, it, well, it's the Gloria in Excelsis Deo of the, of the angels outside of Bethlehem there in chapter 2, verse 14. And then the last is called the Nuke Demetis or the Song of Simeon there in chapter 2, verses 29 through 32. There are the four songs here in the beginning of, of Luke's gospel. But in this one, the one we're going to look at here in just a moment, you can find both celebration for what God has done in the past, but also prophecy for what God is going to do in the future. It is not just a song of praise. And so Luke is correct when he, when he says that the Holy Spirit gave him this prophecy. There's, there's an element here of something that is to come that is being foretold and foretold by the Holy Spirit through Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Part 1, verses 68 through 75, if you're taking notes or if you like to draw outlines in your Bible, part 1 is there in 68 through 75. That's going to be the, the, the section where Zechariah declares God's past faithfulness. You know, what God has done, it is, is set in the past tense, in the third person. It's, it's a, a, a recollection or a rehearsal of, of the great things that God has done, beginning with this covenant with Abraham so long ago. In part two is the last few verses there in 76 through 79, where Zechariah foretells the redemption promised to Israel that is signified in the birth of John. So John's arrival means something within the grander scope of Israel's salvation history, and that's something we're going to examine here in just a moment. But through it all, there is a central theme that you can identify starting at the very beginning of this prophecy, and it is concerned with this idea of God visiting. God visiting his people. Let's take a look here beginning in verse 68 and read it as a whole and then we'll come back and explore this idea of visiting. Verse 68, Zechariah filled with the Spirit says this, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David just as he promised through the holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through, the for, through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. God, we're told and reminded once again through this this incredible prophecy from, from Zechariah, after, by the way, a period of, of 400 years of silence. There has not been a prophet in that time. God has not spoken to his people for centuries. And here, God speaks once again, and through the prophecy, we are reminded that God visits his people. And that term visit carries all sorts of theological weight from the Old Testament. 
It is in the Old Testament where, where we learn that the, the God of Israel, Yahweh, he is not a distant, you know, sort of aloof, you know, unconcerned kind of God. You know, he's just kind of out there somewhere, sort of un- inaccessible, unapproachable. You can't touch him. You can't reach him. He may or may not be aware of what's going on, and he's probably not even all that concerned with our situation. That's not the God of Israel at all, not from what we see in the Old Testament. No, the God of Israel is, is aware of the affairs of his people. He's present in their midst, and he's active, and he is a God who comes. He's a visiting God who visits, yes, absolutely in judgment. And don't think for a second that that, that weight of, of theology that we, we feel from the Old Testament doesn't include the dimension of God's visitation for judgment. That's absolutely in the Old Testament, and you cannot dismiss that or ignore it when we come to our text this morning. But he doesn't just come in judgment. He also comes in redemption. And of course, his supreme visitation, which by the way, was a visitation of both, but in our text here, we're really leaning more towards the redemption side of these things, is of course in the, the, the coming of God at the, at the exodus from Egypt. You remember that story where it's the supreme visitation of God in the Old Testament to his people. It's the, it's the sort of the, the prototype of salvation as Israel came to understand it, how God comes and saves his people and delivers them from, from captivity and sets his people free, not just to release them from, from bondage, but to bring them into a relationship with himself. They were freed from Egypt in order to come to Sinai, where he could, where he could establish the terms of the covenant and show them what it means to belong to him and to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what it means to be saved. You're not saved to just go live how you want in the world like the rest of the world. You're saved to be my possession. You belong to me and therefore you will live like me and look like me and tell the world about me. This is what it means to be the people of God. And that's always the the biblical view of what it means to be the people of God. And so God visits He saves, he delivers, and in the exodus from Egypt, God's people experienced in space and time God's power and presence to save. Through the exodus, God revealed himself in order to rescue and redeem, and he does so, as Zechariah rightly notes here in verses 74 and 75, so God's people can serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. Now, as certainly as God has visited his people in the past, he is visiting them now once again by sending what he says here in verses 69 and 70, um, sending a mighty savior from the royal line of David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. And those details, by the way, are not unimportant. The details that this is the fulfillment of a promise, that this is the, 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 a prophecy brought into reality, that this is one that comes from a, another. All of those details here are not without importance. Zechariah is, making, is not making here a reference to you know, the idea of salvation in the abstract or the general, just sort of general notion of God doing nice things in the world. No, he's referring to the very specific fulfillment of Israel's long-awaited hope of a Messiah. The prophets foretold that this would happen, and Mary's child fulfills it. And Zechariah does not, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, does not want the people there or for you and me here today to miss that connection. Now, what God promised, he delivered. What he said he would do, 
He did. And it's interesting, as we look in the first chapter of Luke, and we see this interaction between Gabriel, who is a, a messenger of Yahweh, and his interaction with Zechariah, a priest of, of God and of the people, it's interesting that this interaction forms almost sort of like a, what I would call like a microcosm of, of the history of God's interaction with his people in this sense. A promise is made that's really hard to believe, and then the promise was kept. Just as Gabriel says something that Zechariah cannot wrap his mind around, so too has God said things to his people throughout time that they, they had trouble wrapping their minds around and even had trouble understanding. And that really comes to light when Jesus steps onto the scene and all the misunderstandings of what the prophecies meant come to light. Because they miss who Jesus was and what he was all about. Now you and I are not unfamiliar with the phenomenon of making promises, are we? Every single person in here, I am confident, and I can't always say this about everything, but I am confident, at least as far as this is concerned, that every single person in here has made a promise to someone at some point in time in their lives. You know what it means to make a promise. And if you're a good-willed person, which I believe all of you wonderful people are, I know that the promises you make, you have every intention of keeping, don't you? You mean it. When you make a promise, you have all the intention in the world of being true to your word. But here's the problem. Every one of you in here, I can also say with confidence, is a flawed person. Not one of you in here has om omniscience. You don't know all things. You can't see the future. You, no one here is omnipotent or omnipotent as God is. You don't have the power to, to produce the outcomes that you desire. And frankly, none of you are all good. And so there may be times where you made a promise and maybe you didn't mean to, to keep it. And so our experiences with making promises is that we know what it means to make a promise, but we also know what it means to either not keep our promise or not be able to keep our promise. But what we are not familiar with is how God makes promises. God who does know all things. God who is all-powerful. God, who is all good. What separates God's promises from our promises is that, well, what he says, he always does. There's no asterisk there next to always. With a footnote at the bottom. <laughs> no, he always, without fail, exactly as he made it, keeps his promises. And so when we come to this prophecy and we, we rehearse once again how God has visited his people and as he's brought, he's redeemed and he's acted in space and time and he's fulfilling promises, we're, we're not viewing it as some sort of random, disconnected work of God, but one instead that stands in direct unbroken continuity with all of God's redemptive history in the fulfillment of an original promise. And it's not one that goes back to David. It's not one that goes back even to the Exodus. It's one that goes back even further, and it's mentioned right here in our passage. It goes all the way back to Abraham himself. And we are reminded in this prophecy that over the centuries, Yahweh has been fulfilling that same promise to him that was made all those ages ago. Over and over and over and over as God keeps his promise again and again and again. The same one he made, 
even though when everyone else has broken their promises, God remains faithful to his. And this is fulfillment of that promise. It's not outside of that promise. It's still in fulfillment of it. It's connected to it organically. After 400 years in Egypt, God sent a deliverer in fulfillment to his promise. And now, after 400 years of silence, God is sending another in fulfillment to his promise. And I know to you and to me, 400 years seems like an awful long time. But the good news is, 400 years is not long enough to outlast the covenant faithfulness of God. You know, we started our service this morning with the Zabrowski family so excellently reading our reading this morning. Thank you for that. It was, it was lovely to see your family up there and to hear your kids participate. It always touches me. And I know as a parent, we want our kids to do it perfectly. But listen, that was perfect. I wouldn't have changed a thing. Thank you for sharing. Every Advent season, each Sunday, we have a different theme. We light a different candle. It reminds us of what the season is all about. But no matter what year it is or what the sermon series is about, the, theme, the themes always begin with the same point, and that is what we talked about this morning, hope. We always start with hope. And listen, if the Benedictus stirs anything in our hearts, it should be that. It should be hope. A hope that says, no matter how dark life gets, no matter how far you and I may have wandered from God or how deep of a mess we've gotten ourselves into, no matter how silent God seems, no matter you know, how hopeless or how desperate our situation might be. He is the visiting God who promises to come and to save, and he has proven himself faithful. You can have hope in that today. Yes, the angel declares in verse 13, God has heard your prayer. It's amazing to me that the, the, the God hears people when they pray, and God answers prayer. And absolutely, when Gabriel arrives on the scene, he's there to tell this couple, listen, God has heard your prayer. You're, you have cried out for a child. You have not been able to conceive. You're old in age. You may have even forgotten all about it altogether at this point because you, you feel like you've missed your opportunity. But listen, it's never too late for God. And he has heard your prayer, and you will be blessed with a child. And absolutely, the angel's message is one of fulfillment of this couple's prayer. Don't miss that. It is important, and it, and it matters. But listen to this also. Their son comes to bear witness to the fact that God has also heard the cries of a people. It's not just the cries of an, of an individual or two. It's the cries of a people for him to come and to redeem in fulfillment of all of his promises in, in generations past. It's about them, but it's about so much bigger than them. And it's always a beautiful thing when the cry of a human heart intersects with the redeeming purposes of the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. So I can guarantee you this morning, no matter kind of where your background is or where you come from, if you come here and your prayers for whatever you're asking God for for your life align with his larger covenant-making and keeping purposes in the world, you can expect him to answer in miraculous and powerful ways. I guarantee it. So part one, verses 68 through 75. Blessed be the God who visits and redeems. But then we come to part two. And there's a really dramatic shift in the text that you, you have to see here there in verse 76. Yes, God, thank you for 
the, the, the history of salvation. Thank you that you've been keeping your covenant promise to Abraham for generations in the past, and even still you continue to do that. But now you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. And it begs the question, especially for the first-time reader, if, if you never heard the, the gospel story, you, never, you don't even know who John the Baptist even is at this point. You don't even know what he mean to baptize. You might be asking the question, how? How does this child do what his father prophesies he will do in, in, in preparing the way for the Lord? How will John do that? If, if, the, if the coming of the Lord is sort of the supreme visitation of God, bringing redemption to his people, how is this baby going to have any part in bringing that about? Well, the other day, and I hope this illustration is helpful to you, the other day, I was doing something that I'm confident that every, most of you have found yourselves doing at some point in your life, and it was searching for something in Walmart. I had a very specific need. My wife was off doing her wife thing in Walmart, and I was doing my, my husbandly duty, and I had an item in a section that I wasn't very familiar with. Now, if it's on the grocery side, like you ask me, I can tell you exactly where it is. I've, it's in, uh, embarrassing how many times I've been on that grocery side and where I, I know where everything is. But on the other side of the store, I, I can get kind of lost at times. And so I had the app in my hand and it, I had the item pulled up and it said it was in stock and I saw the exact aisle where it was. So I, f I found the aisle. I even found the section in the aisle. It was about three feet wide and you know four or five feet tall. And there was only a handful of things there. But for the life of me, I kept staring and staring and I could not see it. And I was growing frustrated because the app said it was here. And Walmart never lies. If the, if the app says it, well, by golly, it is as good as gospel. It had to be there. And so I kept looking at the picture on the, on the phone, and I'm looking at the selection of items, and it was like a solid four or five minutes, which is an eternity in that place. I wanted out of there as quickly as I could, and I couldn't until I found the thing. And I kept staring, and I kept staring, and I kept staring. And it wasn't until I finally discovered that the picture on the phone didn't match the item as it existed on the shelf. Imagine that, right? And once I realized, I was like, oh, it's right there. I've been, literally been staring at this thing for five minutes. I'm not kidding. Staring at that one thing, like in a trance. I'm sure I look like a crazy person, the people walking by. There's this weird guy in aisle I-29 or wherever it was, just staring with probably drool running down my chin, trying to figure out what was going on. I finally found it because I realized the picture didn't match. Maybe you've had something like that happen before. I, I may have seen one or two of you at you know, in Walmart with drool on your chin, but I didn't say anything to anybody. I won't tell anybody your little secret. But you have probably had this experience at some point where you were, maybe the label changed. You know, like maybe it's a different color or maybe they moved it, you know, slightly to a different location and, and it just completely disoriented you because you were expecting to find one thing and you found something else. What's, what's the point in this little <laughs> anecdote here? Well, the lesson that I took from that as it pertains to what I'm trying to get across to you from this text here is, is this. What you're looking for can either be an aid or a hindrance to what you actually see. What, what are you looking for? What are you expecting to see or expecting to find? Blessed be the God who visits and redeems, Zechariah says. 
He has sent us a mighty Savior, just as he promised. And you, my son, you are going to help people to see and to find exactly what he comes to offer. Not what you think he's going to come and offer. Not even what you want him to come and to offer. No, son, you will help people to see exactly what he is actually bringing. Which is what? It's salvation. He comes to bring salvation. And it's not salvation from you know, foreign nations or from some political foe. And you might be tempted to think that as you look at the first part of the prophecy. Like there in uh, verse 71. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. Oh, he means the Romans. He means those pagan oppressors who have, who have conquered us and who rule us and, and prohibit us from being everything God wants us to be in our land Finally, you will save us from our enemies and from those who hate us. Finally, verse 74, we have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear. And you might be tempted to think, as a good first century Jew, when you hear that prophecy, all right, the God who visits and redeems has come once again. It's almost like the exodus is happening in our, in our day. He's going to crush the oppressor. Well, he is going to crush the oppressor. Just not the one that you want him to crush. He is going to save you from your enemy. He is going to deliver you from those who hate you, but not in the way you think he's going to do. No, verse 77 says it all. You will tell people how to find salvation through what? Not liberation from political oppression, through forgiveness of their sins. It's a very different thing, isn't it? The Messiah comes to bring something quite different from what the the conventional messianic expectation was of their day. John, the eschatological harbinger of hope, does not brandish a sword. He brandishes a word. He has something to say. A message from God that light is coming to darkness, but not the darkness of, of, of a political entity, not the darkness of a nation, but the darkness of the human heart. Light there at the level of the soul. And the message for the people of his day is not, a, is not any different than the message as we come to this passage here today. And the, and the, and the, and the point is, if you today are looking for God to come in the form of some sort of political revolution, well, you, like me at Walmart, might be staring him in the face and might miss him altogether. What are you looking for God to do in your life today? We just came out of an election season, and I'm not going to belabor the point, but my goodness, what are Christians asking for in election season? We think Jesus is going to come and deliver us from, our, from the other political party, whichever party you're a part of, as if that's your enemy. And Jesus says, no, I'm not here to play earthly politics. I'm here to eradicate sin in your life. That's what I'm here to do. I'm here to bring light to the darkness, not out there, but right here. And for those who have 
eyes to see, or perhaps it's more fitting to say, for those who have ears to hear what this baby will one day say, what the scriptures are saying to us, if your heart is longing for what Jesus actually aims to provide for your life, then the coming of God and the person of his son is the single most meaningful and fulfilling work of God in all of human history. It's not just some past event in some ancient, dusty corner of the world. It has direct relevance and application for your life today. It's the single most meaningful thing that ever happened in the world. The entire chain of events, we sung about it already this morning. We heard about it, spoken and, and sung. It's, it's a, the message of God is that the entire chain of events from the garden until the baptizer has been preparing for Jesus with John as the penultimate link of that preparation. And if you miss those connections, if you miss the very specific fulfillment of promises made and being kept, if you miss that, then you risk risking just risk you risk missing just like official Judaism, the very Messiah of God himself. Abraham, Moses, David, John, Jesus. The God who comes is the God who saves from sin to the uttermost. And that's one of the reasons why Advent matters. It's one of the reasons why we do it, why we acknowledge it every year. I know it's a little formal that we follow a calendar. (laughs) It's not as, you know, High church, low church, maybe not as low church as, as we're comfortable with. It's definitely not as high church as other denominations and, and Christian groups, uh, how they operate. But, you know, it's, it's got some formality. There's some ceremony to it. There's a little bit of sc- things that are scripted. Um, and I get it. It's, it's not always the most comfortable thing to do. But, but there's a reason why it matters. Because Advent reminds us that salvation's origin story precedes even the birth of Christ. It doesn't just begin in a manger. No, it, it precedes the child with, through a forerunner. And it precedes the forerunner. And it precedes the forerunner's father. And, and it precedes the priestly line from which he, he comes. It precedes Isaiah and the prophets and the ones who spoke about it to come. It precedes David and Moses. And by the way, it even precedes Abraham himself. That's because the origin story of salvation ultimately begins in the heart of God. That's where it starts. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Zechariah sees it, and he proclaims it here in verse 78. Let me read it to you one more time. You probably missed it the first time I read it, because um, some of the, the meaning in the original language is lost in its translation to English. Let me read this to you again, and then we're going to break it apart for just about a couple minutes, and then we'll be done. Zechariah says in verse 78, because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us. Now that word tender there comes from a fun little Greek word that you probably don't know, and that's okay. It's, it's the Greek word splanknon. You want to say that with me? Splanknon. No, seriously, say it. Splanknon. Do you know what that word literally means? 
just out of curiosity, if you know what that word means, raise your hand. <laughs> okay. I love the moments like this because I get to look really smart. And it's really hard for me to look smart. So I'm going to just sort of savor this moment here for a minute. That word, splanklin, literally means intestines. That's right. Suzanne's face said it all. She's like, oh. that's right. The, the very stuff that Luke, who wrote his gospel and also wrote Acts, will later say in the first chapter of Acts, the very stuff that burst out of Judas when he came to his demise. Acts 1, uh, 18 says, Judas had bought a field with the money he received for his treachery, that is, betraying Jesus. Falling headfirst there, his body split open, spilling out all his splanknon, his guts. That's what the word means. It means the inward parts. <laughs> and of the body, of course, that's the, the intestines. The inward parts of the body. But, listen, it also means the inward parts of emotion or affection. That's the context here. The inward parts of a person's heart. So the NLT renders this tender or you know, affectionate mercy, and that is fine, but understand it as the tender, affectionate mercy that comes from the innermost place of God, from his, from the depths of his heart comes his mercy. So concerning the origin story of salvation, what precedes this whole chain of events leading up to the birth of Christ is a love that comes from the, from the depths of the very core of God himself. From the inside out, you could read this to say, because of the bowels of God's unfailing mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to visit us. He's visiting us again, and he's coming, not just in fulfillment of our prophecy, but because even before the prophecy was ever spoken, God bore you in his heart, his love for you in his heart, and from his heart, he sends his word and his son. That's where his mercy comes from. That's where his affections for you come from. That's where his desire for you to be saved comes from. It comes from deep within here. Light for those in darkness. Life for those who are dead. Peace for the troubled. Peace for the restless. Peace for the brokenhearted. Even people like me today whose team lost yesterday. Peace even for me. And by the way, I love moments like yesterday because it reminds me what life is all about. It's not football games. It's the things we're talking about this morning. Being about the work of the Lord in the world and making connections with people so that you and I can be harbingers of hope to the lost and to the dying. That is what life is all about. And you and I have a message that no matter how dark and how evil and twisted a person's life is, no matter, no, no matter how destructive the history of sin in their life has been in, in their own lives, in the lives of those around them, there's a love for them from God that comes deep from within his heart that resulted in him sending a son for them. That's the message we have for the world. How can you and I not have joy and peace and hope and love and life in our lives as we think about that message today? That's what it's all about. That's why we have the lights it represents the message of, of Christ for the world that has been given to us to share with the world. The light can never stay in this room. We take it as we go. That's why we blow the candles out at the end of the service. Not because we don't want to run out of oil, which we don't want to run out of oil, but it represents the light here is out because it's in you as you go. 
you take it with you. Light for those in darkness. We share the news about the faithful one, the merciful one, the way maker and promise keeper, the one who visits, the one who rescues, the one who redeems. And Advent might begin the liturgical year, but don't miss the fact that the coming of Christ is the climax. It's the crescendo of a great salvation of God that began in his own heart from before the beginning of time. As Ephesians 1, 4, Paul says, God loved us even before he made the world. <laughs> wow. Friends, God loved you even then. And every word and work of his throughout time points to his son who is his love incarnated, his love in the flesh. He stepped into this world to embody the love of God for you. He has visited and redeemed. And just as heaven's light was about to break in, then heaven's light wants to break in here this morning. If there's darkness in your heart, and if your prayer is for God to come and visit and rescue and redeem, then he will answer that prayer for you today. The light, the light of heaven is here. And he wants to come in to the darkness of your sinful heart. If you'll say yes, just say yes. Come and have your way in me. Come and dispel the darkness that I have and am. Cleanse me from my sin, from all of my rebellion, all of my waywardness. Crush all of my expectations. We all come expecting Jesus to be and to do something. And the Jesus that is wants to expose our false expectations. He wants to crush them. And the scriptures are the means by which he does it. This is who he is. This is why he's come. This is what he has come to do in your life. Will you say yes to him this morning? To the Jesus that is, the God who visits and redeems. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your, your origin story well, ultimately has no beginning. Maybe that's, a, that's better discussed when looking at the prologue of John and his gospel and where he begins. He begins in the beginning. Even in the beginning, you were there. And it wasn't just some singul singularity. It was a triunity of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit from eternity past. This, this triune God of communion and life and love. And even before you spoke a single other thing into existence, we're told that you had love in your hearts for us, your heart for us. What an astounding mystery that we will, we will get to spend the rest of eternity just beginning to scratch the surface of understanding. But Lord, you want us to, we may not be able to fully understand it here, but you want us to believe it and you ask us to receive it. So I pray for anyone here this morning who has never believed and received the love of God from before the foundation of the world. May, that, may today be the day where that happens. May someone here have a heart that has been stirred by the proclamation of your word, by the, the, the powerful presence of your spirit who superintends that proclamation and is in this room even now softening hearts and, and opening up our ears and, our, and our raising our ability to understand and, and perceive the things of God. You are at work here now and, and may someone come to a place where they finally get it, that you love them. You sent your son for them. You came at Christmas that you might 
die on Good Friday and rise again on Easter. Thank you for those themes in our songs this morning. It's not just Mary and the baby in the manger, but Christ on a cross and risen from the dead. Christmas points to Easter. It's all the fulfillment of your promises. It's all birthed out of your love. Lord, may we come to terms with that this morning and say yes to you and welcome you in even now as I'm praying. Do that in me. Do that in us. That we might, well, serve you without fear in holiness, in righteousness for as long as we live. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.